Hey, Wayne, will you check to make sure that the... Hey, this is Pastor Wayne from Summit Church of Douglas County. Want to welcome you all here. It's not too late to make your way down here to church. Uh, share this link with a friend, Pastor Wayne H., on my various feeds, Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, Twitter, Twitch, LinkedIn, and Instagram. And if you do decide to come in person, 4240 North Perry Park Road, this is what the church looks like. There's a big banner that says church, and you'll see the Summit logo. We'd love to have you here in person as well. We're kicking off, well, we're, we're doing part two of our Revelation series today. So we're excited to study the Bible together. You want to turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter four. Share this with a friend. This is your five-minute countdown before church. We're going to be worshiping in five minutes. So get a Bible, get a pen, refill your coffee. Get a notebook and invite a friend, and we will see you in five minutes, everybody.
Bible this morning. Good to see many of you. Be seated there. Get comfortable. We'll have you start singing here again in a minute. But it's good to be singing Christmas songs. Good morning, Summit Church. Good to see you all here and the ones I can't see. Uh, I hope you guys let this last week linger until next year about this time. Huh? Yeah. There's a thought. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the highlighted verse in the One Year Bible today comes from um, Psalm 119, and it's verse, uh, starts with verse 123, and it says, My eyes strain to see your rescue, to see the truth of your promise fulfilled. I am your servant. Deal with me in unfailing love and teach me your decrees. Give discernment to me, your servant, then I will understand your laws. I think this should be everyone's wish that uh, God would be a good father to us, discipline us if that's what it takes, love us no matter what, and he does. But... Uh, our part in this is to uh, want to learn his decrees. That's right. So the only way we're going to do that really is to read the Bible because there's no other way. Well, there are other ways that he can give us discernment, but this is the best way that he can give us discernment is through his word. He said all of these. He said all this. That's right. He inspired it. If he didn't say it, he inspired it. But uh, with that being said, I just want to take this opportunity at the end of the year to challenge everyone again to the Summit Challenge, That's right. the One Year Bible. That's right. Watch, watch. It starts January 1, okay? <laughs> and uh, you can start now if you'd like and just mark where you started. Finish it up next year. But let's try to read the entire Bible in one year. That's the way this Bible is designed, and we have plenty. If anyone needs a Bible like this, well, it sort of looks like that, but uh, anyway, just let us know, and we'd be happy to get a Bible in your hands. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Yeah. Thank you, Tim. Yeah, no. One other thing that one other resource we have on Bible reading back there is a bookmark. So if you're like, oh, I've never even run the, read the New Testament all the way through. Well, can I suggest do that? <laughs> it's only I, I set it up so you read five chapters a week. So if you just read one chapter Monday through Friday, you get through the entire New Testament in 52 weeks. So I got a Bible bookmark back there. You can grab one of those. And just start reading through the New Testament, Matthew through Revelation. That's what we've been teaching through as a church this year, Matthew through Revelation. So some of you are like, why are you teaching on the book of Revelation in December? Well, we started in Matthew last January, and we're about to finish our New Testament survey. Uh, and I appreciate you guys hanging in there with us because sometimes it feels like we're, we're listening to Bible in fast-forward mode, going getting through so much content in every week. But I think it's good for us to have an overarching picture. It's like a panorama of what God is trying to say in the Bible. Well, we have one other thing, too, and Tim was too, too uh, 
humble to mention it, but we have a, another thing that Tim does. He turns these little Grata Woods, and this is Thanksgiving week, and if I don't mention Grata Woods on Thanksgiving week, I don't know what week I'm going to mention it. Take the Gratitude Challenge, the Grata Wood Challenge. They're in the basket back there. The basket also carved by Tim, everybody. And there's five grooves in a Grata Wood. We want to challenge you to think of five things every day that you're grateful to God for. And hopefully you can come up with a, a new list every day. But maybe the, the list repeats. That's okay. Just be grateful every day. And watch what God does. So I'm going to sing uh, one more Thanksgiving song that I love so much. An old songwriter that I love named Andre Crouch wrote this one called Take a Little Time or Thank You, Lord. And I think many of you will know it once you hear it. Thank you. Doxology, 
And after we say, sing the doxology, we're going to say the Apostles' Creed together as an affirmation of our faith. Because the Advent is a time when we welcome Christ. And Christ isn't the Christ of our own imagination. He's, the, he's who God revealed himself to humanity as. And he reveals himself in the scriptures. And there's some things that all Christians have in common. And it's written down in the Apostles' Creed. <laughs> there's one thing that all Christians can agree upon. And it's those words that we're going to say together after we sing the doxology. So let's do it together. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. Church online. Glad you're watching us here today. You can support the ministry by going to mysummitchurch.com, click the donate button, or go to our Facebook page and do the same. You can text your gift to 303 625 9434. Enter the amount of your gift and press send. Follow the prompts using your smartphone, and 100% of what you give by text will go to the ministry. You can also mail your gift to Summit Church of Douglas County at 200 South Wilcox Street, Box 243, Castle 
Rock, Colorado, 80104. And we're going to get into our study of Revelation today. Turn in your Bible to Revelation chapter 4. And uh, we're going to have several readers. And we're excited that you're along for the ride. So share this link with a friend. Get ready to study the Bible with us. It's going to be a great morning. to the word early today. How do you like that? Sometimes I go over, sometimes I end early. So today is an end early on worship. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll end preaching early. Oh yeah, bell ringing for Salvation Army? For what? Oh, yes, yes. I have a shofar for that. We can blow the shofar. They really get obnoxious. That's fine. Yes. That's a teacher trick, right? Awesome. Hey, uh, will you pull back the microphone for me just a little bit there? Camera ringing. Turn in your Bible with me to Revelation chapter 4. We started our Revelation series last week, and this is, it's, a, it's kind of a wild book. I'm going to tell you, if you read the book of Revelation, it's going to sound a little bit like a psychedelic acid trip to some of you. It's like, wow, this is really, what? Six wings, with two they covered their face, with two they covered their feet, with two they flew, and then there's this beast with eyes all over the wings and all over their body. Like, this is crazy. It actually reads a lot like some of the Old Testament prophecies of Ezekiel and Daniel and other word pictures that you see in the Old Testament. And the book of Revelation is in the same spirit of prophecy in, in the whole Bible. And of course, it's how our Bible ends and how it, it's how it, it finishes. And so I'm going to read um, chapter four here. I'm going to give you a little explainer video because you're going to get lost real fast because I do when I get into the book of Revelation. But I've titled the talk here today, The Book of the Seven Seals. And of course, we sang, we sang that little blues gospel here at the beginning, uh, wrote the book of Seven Seals, John the Revelator. Many people believe that John, who wrote this book, was John the Beloved, who, leaned up against, who the Lord leaned up against at the table, at the communion table. Some think it might be another John, but I have a feeling that it's, it's the same John from the four gospels. That's kind of how I see it. The people do land at different places in Bible interpretation and church history. We don't know exactly. Some of the things can't be proven with archeology. span It's ma mainly seen through church history that we can discern some of these things. But here we are, Revelation chapter four, verse one. And Max is gonna follow along here. If you put these up and try to follow, you don't have to read with me out loud, but you can try to follow along as we go. And I'm gonna have different readers today. So we've got some volunteers uh, that are gonna sing, that are gonna read with me. So chapter one, chapter four, verse one. Then as I looked, I saw a door standing open in heaven. And the same voice that I had heard before spoke to me like a trumpet blast. The voice said, come up here and I will show you what must happen after this. And instantly I was in the spirit and I saw a throne in heaven and someone sitting on it. And the one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones like jasper and carnelian. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. 
24 thrones surrounded him and 24 elders sat on them and they were all clothed in white and had gold crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles of thunder and in front of the throne were seven torches with burning flames. This is the sevenfold spirit of God. In front of the throne was a shiny sea of glass sparkling like crystal. And in the center and around the throne were four living beings, each covered with eyes, front and back. The first of these living beings was like a lion. The second was like an ox. The third had a human face. And the fourth was like that of an eagle in flight. Each of these living beings had six wings, and their wings were covered all over with eyes, inside and out. Day after day and night after night, they keep on saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The Almighty, the one who always was, who is, and who is still to come. Whenever the living beings gave glory and honor and thanks to the one sitting on the throne, the one who was living forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down and worship the one sitting on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever. And they lay their crowns before the throne and they say, You are worthy, O Lord our God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things. And they exist because you created what you pleased. That's a worship session in heaven. That's, that's things that God has created in heaven that we have never seen with human eyes. But one day we will, in the presence of God, see these things that he created. We don't find in nature. We don't find terrestrially. We'll find them celestially. We'll find them in the heavens. And those of us who know the Lord... We say yes and amen right along with those creatures. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of your glory. Like we want more and more of God. We're not afraid of him. We love him. We know that he's good. Yes, he's holy. And he imparts his holiness to us. He calls us to holiness. But we don't have to live afraid of God. We live in love of God. A holy reverence for sure. A holy, um, holy fear, but not terror. Does that make sense? Uh, healthy respect. I had a healthy respect for my dad. I mean, you know what I'm saying? I, re- I knew that he could ground me, or when I was younger, he could spank me. Like, he had, he had the ability to bless me or curse me. Right? He had the ability to good, to good things or bad things to me. And I loved my father. I still love my dad. He's in heaven now. But I also had a healthy respect for him. I had a healthy fear of him. And that's what we're supposed to have with God as our Heavenly Father. I want to show you this explainer video from the Bible Project, and it outlines kind of the first half of Revelation. And there's a couple things in here that I'll clarify after you watch. It it kind of tends towards a more liberal theology, but the explainer part of it, the technical parts of the aspects of Revelation as explained, are done very, very well. It's an animation video where it's, it's like a, an explainer drawing video. So it's very engaging, I think. If you want to come closer, you can see the screen. You might enjoy that. So go ahead and play that beautiful beam footage there, Max. The author of this book, which is not called Revelations, by the way, is named at the beginning. It was written by John, which could refer to the beloved disciple who wrote the gospel and the letters of John, or it could be a different John, a Messianic Jewish prophet who traveled about and taught in the early church. Whichever John it was, he makes clear in the opening paragraph what kind of book he has written. He calls it, first of all, a revelation or apocalypse. 
The Greek word is apokalopsis, and it refers to a type of literature very familiar to John's readers from the Hebrew scriptures and from other popular Jewish texts. Apocalypse has recounted a prophet's symbolic dreams and visions that revealed God's heavenly perspective on history and current events so that the present could be viewed in light of history's final outcome. And John says this apocalypse is a prophecy, which means it's a word from God spoken through a prophet to God's people, usually to warn or comfort them in a time of crisis. By calling this book a prophecy, John's saying that it stands in the tradition of the biblical prophets and is bringing their message to a climax. And this apocalyptic prophecy was sent to real people that John knew. The book opens and closes as a circular letter that was sent to seven churches in the ancient Roman province of Asia. Now, seven is a meaningful number for John. It's a symbol of completeness based on the seven-day Sabbath cycle in the Old Testament. And John has woven sevens into every single part of this book. Now, with this opening, John has given us clear guidance about how he wants us to understand this book. Jewish apocalypse is communicated through symbolic imagery and numbers. It is not a secret predictive code about the timing of the end of the world. Rather, John is constantly using these symbols that are drawn from the Old Testament, and he expects his readers to go discover what the symbols mean by looking up the text he's alluding to. Also, the fact that it's a letter means that John is actually addressing the situation of these first century churches. And so while this book has much to say to Christians of later generations, the book's meaning must first be anchored in the historical context of John's time, place, and audience. Which brings us into the book's first section, Jesus' message to the seven churches. John was exiled on the island of Patmos, and he saw a vision of the risen Jesus exalted as king of the world. And he was standing among seven burning lights. And John's told this is a symbol of the seven churches in Asia Minor that's been adapted from the book of the prophet Zechariah. And Jesus starts addressing the specific problems that face each church. Some were apathetic due to wealth and affluence, others were morally compromised, their people were still eating ritual meals and sleeping around in pagan temples, but others among the churches remained faithful to Jesus, and they were suffering harassment and even violent persecution. And Jesus warns that things are going to get worse. A tribulation is upon the churches that will force them to choose between compromise or faithfulness. By John's day, the murder of Christians by the Roman Emperor Nero was passed, and the persecution of Christians by Emperor Domitian was likely underway. And so the temptation was to deny Jesus, either to avoid persecution or simply to join the spirit of the Roman age. And Jesus calls them to faithfulness so that they can overcome, or literally conquer. And Jesus promises a reward for everyone in these churches who does conquer. Each reward is drawn directly from the book's final vision about the marriage of heaven and earth. And so this opening section, it sets up the main plot tension that will drive the storyline in this book. Will Jesus' people endure? Will they inherit the new world that God has in store? And why is faithfulness to Jesus described as conquering? The rest of the book is John's answer. After this, John has a vision of God's heavenly throne room. He describes it with imagery drawn from many Old Testament prophets. Surrounding God are creatures and elders that represent all creation and human nations, and they're given honor and allegiance to the one true creator God who is holy, holy, holy. In God's hand is a scroll that's closed up with seven wax seals. It symbolizes the message of the Old Testament prophets and the sealed scroll of Daniel's visions. These are all about how God's kingdom will come here fully on earth as in heaven. But, it turns out, no one is able to open the scroll. Until John hears of someone who can. It's the lion from the tribe of Judah and the root of David. He can open it. 
These are classic Old Testament descriptions of the Messianic king, who would bring God's kingdom through military conquest. Now, that's what John hears, but then what he turns and sees is not an aggressive lion king, but a sacrificed bloody lamb, who's alive, standing there, and ready to open the scroll. Now, this symbol of Jesus as the slain lamb, this is crucially important for understanding the book. John's saying that the Old Testament promise of God's future victorious kingdom was inaugurated through the crucified Messiah. Jesus overcame his enemies by dying for them as the true Passover lamb, so that they could be redeemed. Because of the resurrection, Jesus' death on the cross was not a defeat. It was his enthronement. It was the way he conquered evil. And so this vision concludes with the Lamb, alongside the one sitting on the throne, and together they are worshipped as the one true creator and redeemer, and the slain Lamb begins to open the scroll. It's a symbol of his divine authority to guide history to its conclusion. Which brings us to the next section of the book, the three cycles of seven. Seven seals, seven trumpets, and seven bowls. And each cycle depicts God's kingdom and justice coming here on earth as in heaven. Now, some people think that the three sets of seven divine judgments represent a literal, linear sequence of events that either happened in the past, or could be happening now, or are yet to happen in the future when Jesus returns. But notice how John has woven all the sevens together. So the final seven bowls come out of the seventh trumpet and the seventh seal. And the seven trumpets emerge from the seventh seal. They're like nesting dolls. Each seven contains the next seven. Also notice how each of the series of seven culminates in the final judgment, and they have matching conclusions. So it's more likely that John is using each set of seven to depict the same period of time between Jesus' resurrection and future return from three different perspectives. So the slain lamb begins to open the scroll's first four seals, and John sees four horsemen. It's an image from the book of Zechariah chapter 1, and they symbolize times of war, conquest, famine, and death. In other words, a tragically average day in human history. Then the fifth seal depicts the murdered Christian martyrs before God's heavenly throne, and the cry of their innocent blood rises up before God like smoke from the altar of incense, and they're told to rest because more Christians are yet to die. We're not told why, but we are told that it won't last forever. The sixth seal is God's ultimate response to their cry. He brings the great day of the Lord that was described in Isaiah and Joel, and the people of the earth cry out, who is able to stand? And then all of a sudden, John pauses the action with an intermission to answer that question. John sees an angel with a signet ring coming to place a mark of protection on God's servants who are enduring all this hardship. And he hears the number of those who are sealed, 144,000. It's a military census, like the one in the book of Numbers, chapter 1. There are 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, pay attention. The number of this army is what John heard, just like he heard about the conquering Lion of Judah. But in both cases, what he then turned and saw was the surprising fulfillment of those military images in Jesus, the slain Lamb. So when he sees this messianic army of God's kingdom, it's made up of people from all nations, fulfilling God's ancient promise to Abraham. It's this multi-ethnic army of the Lamb who can stand before God because they've been redeemed by the Lamb's blood. And now they are called to conquer, not by killing their enemies, but by suffering and bearing witness just like the Lamb. After this, the seventh and final seal is broken. But before the scroll is opened, the seven warning trumpets emerge and fire is taken from the incense altar. It symbolizes the cry of the martyrs and it's cast onto the earth, bringing the day of the Lord to its completion.
Now, with the seven trumpets, John backs up and he retells the story again, this time with images from the Exodus story. So the first five trumpet blasts replay the plague sent upon Egypt, and then the sixth trumpet releases the four horsemen that came from the first four seals. But then John tells us that despite all these plagues, the nations did not repent, just like Pharaoh didn't in the Exodus story. So it seems that God's judgment alone will not bring people to humble repentance before him. Then John pauses the action again with another intermission. An angel brings the unsealed scroll that was opened by the Lamb. And just like Ezekiel, John is told to eat the scroll and then proclaim its message to the nations. Finally, the Lamb scroll is open and now we will discover how God's kingdom will come here on earth. The scroll's content is spelled out in two symbolic visions. First, John sees God's temple and the martyrs by the altar, and he's told to measure and set them apart. It's an image of protection taken from Zechariah chapter 2. But then the outer courts in the city are excluded, and they get trampled down by the nations. Now, some think that this refers literally to a destruction of Jerusalem that happened in the past or will happen in the future. But more likely, John's following the tradition of Jesus and the apostles who all used the new temple as a symbol for God's new covenant people. In that case, this is an image about how Jesus' followers may suffer persecution by the nations, but this external defeat cannot take away their victory through the land. This idea gets expanded in the scroll's second vision. God appoints two witnesses as prophetic representatives to the nations. Once again, some people think this refers literally to two prophets who will appear one day in the future. But John calls them lampstands, which is one of his clear symbols for the churches. So this vision is more likely about the prophetic role of Jesus' followers, who are to take up the mantle of Moses and Elijah and call idolatrous nations and rulers to turn back to the one true God. But then, all of a sudden, a horrible beast appears. Let the reader remember Daniel chapter 7, and the beast conquers the witnesses and kills them. But then, God brings them back to life and vindicates the witnesses before their persecutors, and the end result is that many among the nations finally do repent and give glory to the Creator God in the day of the law. Now, stop. Think about the story so far. God's warning judgments through the seals and through the trumpets did not generate repentance among the nations, just like the Exodus plagues only hardened Pharaoh's heart. But the Lamb, he conquered his enemies by loving them, dying for them. And now the message of the Lamb's scroll reveals the mission of his army, the church. God's kingdom will be revealed when the nations see the church imitating the loving sacrifice of the Lamb, not killing their enemies, but dying for them. It is God's mercy shown through Jesus' followers that will bring the nations to repentance. And this surprising claim is the message of the open scroll that John has placed at the exact center of the entire book. After this, the last trumpet sounds and the nations are shaken as God's kingdom comes here on earth as it is in heaven. So now we know how the church will bear witness to the nations and inherit the new creation, but who was that terrible beast that waged war on God's people, and how will the whole story turn out? John will tell us in the second half of the book of the Revelation. All right, did you catch all that? Yeah. <laughs> right? Mind-blowing. The book of Revelation is not to be taken lightly. Uh, don't... Don't skim it because you'll miss something, I guarantee it. So my, I, I talked a little bit about this last week. Of course, we're a non-denominational church. People approach this book in, with at least four different mindsets. 
You have these purely symbolic uh, opinion where they think that it doesn't really apply to anything historical at all. It's purely spiritualized. It's spiritualism. It's just, it's all a metaphor for the spiritual life. I don't ascribe to that view. Um, there are some who ascribe to the historical view, which is just, this all had to do with what was happening in the church in the first century. It doesn't have anything to do with the end of days or the coming of Christ. This was all, again, uh, more applying to the times of the churches, of the seven churches that John was writing these letters to. I think it's more than that because the way it's written, if you read it within its context, and if you, if you really take the hermeneutic seriously, like the, the Bible means something, and it means what it says, it says what it means, it has a plain meaning, what does it mean to the average reader? I think you can't you can't take that view. The next view is the preterist view, which is um, it, it's as if God is telling the story of human history from the early church time through the church ages up to our day, but it's not predictive in any kind of way. That it's just telling the story of the spiritualizing of the church and the historical uh, arc of history. What's happening with Christians and Christianity over time, that's the, what they call the preterist view. And then finally, it's the futurist view, which, which is I, what I ascribe to. And I reserve the right to be wrong, okay, everybody? I, I, I don't claim to be <laughs> uh, fall, uh, infallible in this. I approach this with humility. I don't know what all this stuff means, neither do you, right? So I, I, I approach it from the futurist view. I do think it has to do with the suffering of the church through the ages, but it's also predictive of what we can expect in the future that there will be a war and that all the nations are going to come against Jerusalem at some point, that Christ will return literally to the earth. He said, as you've seen me go away, that's how I'm going to come back. He is going to set foot physically in person, in the body, on the Mount of Olives, and all the nations are going to have to submit to his authority. So those are my beliefs about it. And the way we're going to do this, everybody, is we're going to read through the scripture just word for word. So Johnny Decker, why don't you come up here, buddy, and read chapter five. Let's hear it for Johnny, everybody. Bigger words than Oh, hey, okay. It's pretty cool. Sorry for being short. That's all right. Is that good? Yeah, it's good. Cool. It's a little like Yeah. Cool. So chapter five is the lamb opens the scroll. Then I saw the scroll in the right hand of the one who was sitting on the throne. There was writing on the inside and the outside of the scroll, and it was sealed with seven seals. I saw the strongest angel who shouted with a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals on this scroll and open it? But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll and read it. Then I began to weep bitterly, because no one was found worthy to open the scroll and read it. But one of the twenty-four elders said to me, Stop weeping. Look, the lion of the tribe Judah, the heir to David's throne. He has won the victory. He is the worthy to open the scroll and the seven seals. Then I saw a lamb that looked as, it, as if it had been slaughtered, but now standing between the throne and the four living beings among the 24 elders, he had seven horns and then seven eyes, which represent the sevenfold spirit of God that it is sent out in every part of the earth. He stepped forward and took the scroll from the right hand of the one sitting on the throne. And he took the scroll, and then the four living beings on the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb. Each one had a harp, and they held gold bowls full of incense, which are prayers of God's people. And then they sang a song with new words. You are worthy to take the scroll, and it breaks the seal and open it. For you were slaughtered, and your blood has ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. 
and you have caused them to become a kingdom of priests for our God, and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked again, and I heard the voices of thousands and millions of angels around the throne and, live, and of living beings and elders, and they sang in a mighty chorus, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, oh, worthy is the Lamb who was slaughtered, to receive the power and riches of the wisdom and strength, and honor, glory, and blessing. And then I heard every creature and every heaven on earth and under the earth and the sea, and they sang, Blessing and honor and glory and power belong to the one sitting on the throne, and to the Lamb forever and ever. And of the four living beings said, Amen. And then the twenty-four elders fell down and worshipped the Lamb. And that's, that's chapter 5. Yep. Nice work. We're going to have Al next read chapter 6. Thank you. As I watched, the lamb broke the first of seven seals on the scroll. Then I heard one of the four living beings say with a voice like thunder, Come. I looked up and saw a white horse standing there. Its rider carried a bow, and a crown was placed on his head. He rode out to win many battles and gain the victory. When the lamb broke the second seal, I heard the second living being say, Come. Then another horse appeared, a red one. Its rider was given a mighty sword and the authority to take peace from the earth. And there was war and slaughter everywhere. When the lamb broke the third seal, I heard the third living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a black horse, and its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand. And I heard a voice from among the four living beings say, A loaf of wheat bread or three loaves of barley will cost a day's pay, and don't waste the olive oil and wine. When the lamb broke the fourth seal, I heard the fourth living being say, Come. I looked up and saw a horse whose color was pale green. Its rider was named Death, and his companion was the grave. These two were given authority over one-fourth of the earth to kill with the sword and famine and disease and wild animals. When the lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of all who had been martyred for the word of God and for being faithful in their testimony. They shouted to the Lord and say, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge the people? who belong to this world and avenge our blood for what they have done to us. Then a white robe was given to each of them, and they were told to rest a little longer until the full number of their brothers and sisters, their fellow servants of Jesus, who were to be martyred, had joined them. I watched the lamb broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake. The sun became as dark as black cloth and the moon became as red as blood. Then the stars of the sky fell to the earth like green figs falling from a tree shaken by a strong wind. The sky was rolled up like a scroll, and all of the mountains and islands were moved from their places. Then everyone, the kings of the earth, the rulers, the generals, the wealthy, the powerful, and every slave and free person, all hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they cried to the mountains and the rocks, 
fall on us and hide us from the face of the one who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of the wrath has come, and who is able to survive? Thank you. So let's get to uh, chapter 7. It says, Then I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds, so that they did not blow on the earth or the sea, or even on any tree. And I saw another angel coming up from the east, carrying the seal of the living God. And he shouted to those four angels, who had been given power to harm land and sea, Wait! Don't harm the land or the sea or the trees until we have placed the seal of God on the foreheads of his servants. And I heard how many were marked with the seal of God. 144,000 were sealed from all the tribes of Israel, from Judah, 12,000, from Reuben, 12,000, from Gad, 12,000, from Asher, 12,000, from Naphtali, 12,000, from Manasseh, 12,000. Quick note here. It's interesting. The tribe of Dan is not mentioned, but they've split off. And, and named Manasseh in Dan's place. We, have, we don't have any explanation in the scripture as to why that is, but it's named that way. From Simeon, 12,000. From Levi, 12,000. From Issachar, 12,000. From Zebulun, 12,000. From Joseph, 12,000. From Benjamin, 12,000. After this, I saw a vast crowd, too great to count, for from every nation and tribe and people and language, standing in front of the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes and held palm branches in their hands, and they were shouting with a great roar, Salvation comes from our God, who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living beings, and they fell before the throne with their faces to the ground and worshipped God. And they sang, Amen. Blessing and honor and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and strength belong to our God forever and ever. Amen. Take a breath on that one. And then one of the 24 elders asked me, who are these who are clothed in white? Where did they come from? And I said to him, sir, you are the one who knows. And he said to me, these are the ones who died in in the great tribulation. They have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb and have been made white. And that is why they stand in front of God's throne and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will give them shelter. And they will never again be hungry or thirsty. They will never be scorched by the heat of the sun. For the Lamb on the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of life-giving water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. John Wesley said this. He said, if I had 300 men who feared nothing but God, hated nothing but sin, and we were determined to know nothing among men except Jesus Christ and him crucified, I would set the world on fire. Salvation comes from our God who sits on the throne and from the Lamb. Lily is going to read chapter 8. Um, So the lamb breaks the seventh seal. When the lamb broke the seventh seal on the scroll, there was a silence throughout heaven for about half an hour. I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and they were were seven trumpets. 
Then another angel with a gold incense burner came and stood at the altar, and a great amount of incense was given to the mix, the prayers of God people, as an offering on the gold altar before the throne. The smoke of the incense mixed with the prayers of God's holy people ascended up to God from the altar, where the angel had poured them out. Then the angel filled the incense burner with fire and from the altar and threw it down upon the earth, and thunder crashed, lightning flashed, and there was a terrible earthquake. The first four trumpets. Then the seven angels with the seven trumpets prepared to blow their mighty blasts. The first angel blew his trumpet, and hail and fire mixed with blood were thrown down onto the earth. One third of the earth was set on fire, one third of the trees were burned, and all the green grass was burned. Then the second angel blew his trumpet, and on the great mountain of fire was thrown into the sea. One third of the water in the sea became blood. One third of all living things in the sea died, and one third of all ships on the sea were destroyed. Then the third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from the sky, burning like a torch. It fell on one third of the rivers and the springs of water. The name of the star was bitterness. It made one third of the water bitter, and many people died from drinking the bitter water. Then the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and one third of the sun was struck, and one third of the moon, and one third of the stars, they, and they became dark. On, and one third of the day was dark, and also one third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard a single eagle crying loudly as it flew through the air, terror, terror, terror to all people who belong to this world because of what happens when the last three angels blow their trumpets. Yeah, let's give it a hand for all of our readers here today. It's hard to make a lot of Bible application to the, to the discipleship life reading the book of Revelation. And the best we can do, I think, is read it and say, Lord, give us, give us hearts and ears to listen and a mind to understand the things that you're saying to us. And I think that some of these things, when they are fulfilled, we'll know it. We'll go, oh yeah, remember when that giant asteroid hit the ocean? Remember? <laughs> that was, that was the, the, that, the word used in chapter 8 there said bitterness in cap, capital B. The King James translation calls that wormwood. And um, we're not sure why those different translations are what they are. I could give you more study on that. But... What we do know about scripture is that all scripture, including the book of Revelation, is written to instruct us, to teach us in godliness, to teach us to know and to love and to fear the Lord. And I wanted to read from Proverbs chapter one as a reminder of why do we do this? Why are we studying Revelation? Well, because the whole Bible from beginning to end is instructive for all of us. And if we don't skip any parts of the Bible, any parts of the Bible we think are uncomfortable, or I disagree with that, or I don't like that. We, we don't treat God like a salad bar where I'll just leave the parts I don't like, I'll just take the parts I do like, and I'll craft God in my image. No, no, no. We're crafted in His image, not the other way around. So Scripture, what's the purpose of Scripture? Well, Proverbs 1 says this. It says, these are the Proverbs of Solomon, David's son, the king of Israel, their purpose, and this is true of all scripture, their purpose is to teach people wisdom and discipline, to help them understand the insights of the wise. Their purpose is to teach people to live disciplined and successful lives, to help them to do what is right 
just, and fair. These Proverbs will give insight to the simple, knowledge and discernment to the young. Let the wise listen to these Proverbs and become even wiser. Let those who, with understanding, receive guidance by exploring the meaning in these Proverbs and parables, the words of the wise and their riddles. Fear of the Lord is the foundation of true knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and discipline. The Bible says the, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. To go, okay, God, you're in charge, not me. <laughs> I submit to what you say. I don't try to make you do what I, I want to manipulate you into doing. A lot of times people treat their prayer life as if God is the errand boy. Here's, here's my punch list for you, God. If you'll just fix these things for me. Yeah, <laughs> yes, does God help us? Does he bless us? Of course. But he, he's God, not us. And he's the one in the end that is going to get his way. God is going to get his way. And you can either fight against his plan or you can cooperate with it. And I suggest that you cooperate with his plan. Because when you do, things will go much better for you. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And it, 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 is it intellectual? Yes. But there's some things that are so beyond our understanding, they can only be spiritually discerned. They can't be grasped intellectually. They have to be understood experientially. Amen? When, when someone comes to Christ, they go, oh, now I get it. But you try to explain Jesus or salvation to someone who doesn't believe, and they go, that doesn't make sense. How can that be? Well, you haven't experienced it yet. You haven't put your faith and trust into Christ yet. If you did, then you would start to understand through your experience. But if you're going to wait before, uh, before you trust in God, before you can fully understand him, you'll never trust in God. Because God is always going to be bigger than what you can understand. He's eternal. You are finite. He's the one with no beginning, no end, and will always be the ever-present God, omniscient, omni omni omnipresent, omnipotent, he is everything, everywhere, everything that you'll ever need, right? And you can't wrap your brain around a God like that. You can only know him and let him know you. You can only open your heart to him and let him come in. It's having a relationship with God. It's not intellectual, purely. Your intellect gets involved somewhere along the line, but really it starts in the heart. It starts in your spirit. It starts with an attitude of surrender. Saying, God, I can't figure this stuff out. I'm not smart enough. I'm not powerful enough to overcome my sin problem. I can't deal with my anxiety, my depression, my money problems, my addictions, my fears, whatever, whatever problem you have that's too big for you, it's not too big for God. If you'll just turn it over. If you'll just surrender. And that's the beginning of wisdom. Fearing the Lord. Letting him be in charge. Well, you could be here in the room today or you may be watching online and you've never done that. You've always treated God as like an hour at church on Sunday and the rest of the week I get to do whatever I want. Well, guess what? You haven't really made him the Lord if that's the case. Religion for you is just like joining a club. It's like being a Democrat or a Republican. I'm a Christian, you know, it's like whatever. It's just one more thing, I'm tacking on the list. No, no. 
Christ is the all-encompassing filter through which our lives are poured through. He, he changes everything about our lives, the way we think, the way we talk, the way we see things. And I encourage you to surrender your life to Christ. You see, God created all of us to be with him. You're made in God's image. And he wants to have a friendship with you. But your sins, my sins, they separate us from God. God is holy. He doesn't put up with sin. Sin can't exist in his presence. So they, that's the sins that we commit, they can't be paid for by doing good deeds. It doesn't happen by you just really punishing yourself for your own sins. No, paying the price for our sins, Jesus died and he rose again. He made the way for us to, to be declared righteous. And everyone who put their trust in Christ can have life, not just a good life in this world now, but eternal life one day in heaven. This book that we're studying, the book of Revelation, it's speaking about a new heaven and a new earth. The one day God's gonna come, hey, I'm gonna live with you guys now. He's gonna come down and dwell among us. He's gonna have the perfect government, right? It's gonna be perfectly, can you imagine if government never made a mistake? Wouldn't that be amazing? you mad that imagine uh, a leader that doesn't have to keep getting elected every four years? He's just perfect. Like he's in charge and will be for the next thousand years, right? That wouldn't that be amazing? Never makes a mistake, all loving, all powerful, never does anything wrong. We're going to see that on the earth. We're going to see that. But you, you might not see it if you don't say, God, I surrender. How do you do that? It's a matter of prayer, just a, a simple step of faith of saying, God, I open my life to you. I want you to forgive me of my sins. I want you to come in and take charge of my life. Be my Lord. I want to live for you. I don't want to live for myself anymore. And when you do that, he comes in. <laughs> he starts rearranging the furniture in your spiritual house. He starts going, oh no, we got to get this out of here. Oh, there's some new things that you, you need. You need in this house. A little scripture reading might be good for you. A little prayer might be good. You know, getting this junk out of here. Let's Come on, we're going to clean up this house. And God starts that process the moment you say yes to Jesus. And you got to let him do it and turn you into a disciple of Christ. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes here today? If you need to pray that prayer of commitment to Christ, maybe you've never prayed it, or maybe you prayed it years ago, but it's been a long time and you really haven't been living with Christ as the Lord of your life, would you just slip your hand up and say, today's my day to get right with God? If you're watching online, give me a like or a thumbs up or a, a comment saying, I'm, I'm giving my life to Jesus. Church, let's pray this prayer of salvation of commitment to him today. Repeat after me. Just say, dear Jesus, I'm sorry for my sins. Thank you for dying on the cross. You died in my place. And you rose again. According to the scriptures. Please come into my heart. Take charge of my life. Fill me with your spirit. I want to follow you, Jesus. From this moment forward. In your name. Amen. Amen. There you go. We did it. Revelation part two. 
And the fun continues next week, and uh, it only gets crazier. And you, I would just say, study the Bible. And if you're like, this is interesting, keep coming. Don't miss a week because one teaching builds on the next. And you might be really confused by we get to the end and you missed a, a Sunday. Or, or you know, check out the podcast, download the talks, listen through, and we can follow this kind of in a linear story fashion. And if you'd like to be a reader in the weeks ahead, I would love to have some of you... Uh, just read the scriptures because isn't that great to just hear hear another voice, hear someone else read the scripture? I just love hearing it in different in different voices and different uh, age groups and stages of life. And God has a wonderful plan for your life. He has a wonderful plan for the earth, right? And he has he also has a a terrible plan for the devil and a terrible plan for those who align themselves with the enemy. So. Uh, we can see, can't we see it? The storm clouds on the horizon coming. It's weird. The days are getting closer and closer each day. The, the return of Christ is coming soon and very soon. So I'm, I'm glad that you came here today. Happy Thanksgiving. Merry Christmas. If you want to support the ministry, you can hit the donation box in the back or you can donate online through the various ways that I mentioned already. Why don't you stand and I'll give you the, the benediction. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your presence. This holiday season, Lord, help us to be truly grateful. Help us to look for others who need, Lord, encouragement, who need friendship. Help us to get outside of ourselves and to put you first place and to think of others and find ways of demonstrating your love to a hurting world. Now, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. May he be gracious unto you, lift your countenance, and give you his peace. In Christ's name I pray. Amen. Amen, everybody. Have a wonderful week. We'll see you next Sunday for part three of the Revelation series. Take care. God bless. Thank you so much for tuning in today to the ministry of Summit Church and the daily outreach of Wayne Hansen. You can support our ministry in many ways. Click the donate button on our Facebook page, Summit Church of Castle Rock. Visit our webpage, mysummitchurch.com, and click the online giving link. Or mail your donation to Summit Church of Castle Rock, 200 South Wilcox Street, Box 243, Castle Rock, Colorado, 80104. Or finally, text your gift to 303-625-9434 and follow the prompts using your smartphone. You can also support us by connecting with our online community. Comment, like, share, follow, and subscribe on our various social media channels. Of course, we appreciate you joining us in daily prayer. I'm Sean Rima, and on behalf of Pastor Wayne and the Summit Church family, take care and have a great week. Remember, God loves you, and he has a wonderful plan for your life. <laughs>